Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. Miranda Bennett is a pioneer of ethical manufacturing, local and transparent production models, and sustainability through design and materials. A graduate of Parsons School of Design and Eugene Lang College, Bennett's thesis and senior collection were rooted in local maker economies that askew mass production and the exploitation of workers. Bennett began her career in fashion in 2006 with her first eponymous collection designed, cut, and ethically sewn by women-owned production facilities in New York City. Her current brand, Miranda Bennett Studio, highlights plant-dyed, zero-waste women's apparel made under one roof in Austin, Texas. A pilgrim of myth, Bennett is often captured by the invisible underlying thread that connects us all. An awareness of this connection and that no actions exist in a vacuum is the foundation of her approach to fashion and environmental stewardship. Well, of course, Miranda, though I am fascinated by your work, I do really want to reveal who you are at your core, which I know your work is a part of that, but it's not all of you. And I think that might be a a bit of a theme today. So I want to kick things off as usual with my favorite question. Where were you born and how do you identify with that place? So I was actually born in Austin, Texas, Um, but it's I identify with Austin as my home, but it's a little funky because I was born here. And then when I was two, we moved away and we moved around um, basically from that age until I was 12. So we lived in um, Southeast Asia. We lived in um, the Bay Area in California and then moved back here when I was in middle school. But my dad lived in Uh, on the West Coast still. So I would go back there. And I always kind of felt a duality between my place of origin because of that. Um, It's like here, people are so hardcore about claiming Texas as like, you know, this legacy and this whole thing. And um, I feel like I get I can skate by with that because of having been born here. But I definitely feel the parts of myself that were formed from movement and from, you know, living in different places and how that sort of kind of forces you to create space within yourself and home within yourself and identity. And um, there's kind of this way that you're tested when you move to different places that you're not when you stay in one place your whole life, because you have to like redefine yourself in your surroundings, reintegrate into them. And um, 
you know, that can be really hard and really lonely. And I think like through loneliness, I find my creativity. So it's kind of a, you know, it's not always the easiest way to get there. But I think that that was really what led to me being kind of a creative kid and a teenager and into an adult. Do you like to be lonely? Not in the moment, you know, like it's interesting because I feel like that's something that always feels achy when it's happening. But when I look back on, um, you know, periods of production in terms of my creative work or even, you know, my sort of sense of centering as a person, um, it really requires a certain amount of loneliness and being alone. And I often feel you know, without that opportunity to like recharge and just inhale, I can get really off balance. So I've, I've kind of had to renegotiate my understanding of what lonely is, you know, as an adult, and understand what a tool it is for me. But I think as a kid, I definitely felt it a lot. And at that time, my relationship to it wasn't really gelled yet, you know, so it was, um, I found like, Creativity was a way to sort of warm that space up or that feeling up. What do you think is the difference between loneliness and solitude? Well, I think your understanding of yourself and that time, you know, because I think we have a culture that more and more we don't really spend a lot of time completely alone. You know, even if you go to a restaurant and you're waiting, you're on your phone, Um, before that it would have been a magazine or a book Um, but I think there is kind of this stigma sometimes around it uh, particularly I think in like public places but um, I think loneliness though there is a distinction there in that we have a craving and appetite and need for nourishment through others and that can really like if you have chronic loneliness it's the same as like a chronic hunger of any kind you know it creates a deficient it's something that you need to fill and i think that is an important distinction that um it's one thing to be alone in a spirit of like restoration and recentering but you know i think there is a a nourishing that happens when you're around others and have that contact and i think we're all really getting in touch to what our dynamic with is with that is now, you know, more than ever. Yeah. Um, and feeling some of that social muscle kind of atrophy a little bit with the extended period of um, COVID that we've all been in. So it's fascinating to see how we're all having to adapt to that and understand how we get that nourishment within this context. I feel like you're really good at carving out time for yourself, even knowing that, you know, you need that cocoon in the morning. How do you tell people, no, I I don't have time or no, I just don't feel like it. How do you tell them I don't have the space in my day or myself right now to spend time with you? It's honestly one of the hardest things in the world for me to do. And I think that might be part of why I have to have that morning cocoon (laughs) because that's kind of this like sacred space where, um, you know, I define how long that lasts. And then when I kind of plunge into the day, it, it does get harder for me to assert those limits. I think in particular because of the role that I have with work and, um, 
one thing I've really been trying to negotiate within that is to set better boundaries around what I need to create balance in my life um, to sort of stop being the catch-all, which I think as a entrepreneur and someone who started as a solopreneur, like that reflex of something needs to get done or resolved or figured out, I'm going to throw myself on it is like still so ingrained in me. And I've realized how detrimental that can be when you constantly offer yourself for the solution, for the yes, for the, okay, I can do that because you don't create space for those around you in whatever the context to show up as well and to put what they can forward. Um, And I realized that with work in particular, because that was the thing that was really starting to burn me out, feeling like I was constantly in a problem solving mode, which was taking all my creative energy. But then at the same time, those around me couldn't like rise up to the occasion in the way that they wanted to. And it was creating kind of a like a self-fulfilling pattern, you know, saying no is really hard. I recently heard something. um, It was like to exhale, which is like, you know, to be with others, to speak, to engage with work. You have to inhale first. Mm. And I've, that really resonated. I'm really trying to be better about having the time and space to inhale and, um, you know, I think I get depleted really quickly with communication sometimes because I really, I can't like BS and I really will connect from the heart, but you know, there's only so much of that energy you have at all times to give, you know? Yeah. Stay tuned. I'm still working on it. (laughs) Yeah. That's well said. Well, from the outside, it seems like you do it really well. And it's definitely something I have personally struggled with. I think it's multifaceted for me. I I am outgoing and mm-hmm. I think it's also been in my um a tool of survival in many mm-hmm. ways because I've lived in so many places. So how else do you connect to a place without getting to know the people there, right? Totally. Um, and then with my work, it was a method of survival because in order to grow, you have to network and meet people. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's how you, especially with, you know, the kind of businesses we have, like that's how you um, kind of create the web, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I, I often say the introvert in me gets suppressed. Like that poor girl, she's hungry. Like she yeah. needs to be alone, you <laughs> know? waiting to um, inhale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like the coffee dates and the Zoom chat, like all that stuff it can get really overwhelming. Well, that I will say is the stuff I'm really good at saying no to, unfortunately. And um, I do feel like it is my social life that is the first thing to go because Mm -hmm. I just find that I really need to restore in my evenings and on my weekends. Um, And it's hard because I do genuinely have periods where like I miss my friends, but it's, you know... I think it's an imperfect solution. It's not one I'm super stoked about, but I totally relate with moving around and having to kind of acclimate to different environments. You have to cultivate this extrovertedness, you know, to, um, and I feel like within that, there's also this layer of like adaptability and being able to kind of read these different environments. I think that really eluded me sometimes from my identity because I would kind of be trying to, trying to read the room and understand what was 
you know, what the deal was in different contexts and kind of always feeling a little bit like an outsider. Um, sometimes it made it that survival skill almost sometimes made it harder for me to like connect with what I was authentically feeling. Mm, that's so well said. I, I feel that so much shape shifting, you know, mm-hmm. um, assimilating the chameleon, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I, I think also when it becomes a skill, you want to practice it, mm-hmm. get at it, you know? <laughs> um, but it, but it can definitely take away from just like your authentic self, you mm-hmm. know? And I do feel like oftentimes who you really are is, is who you are when you're alone. I think for those of us who work for ourselves, it can get further confusing because um, we can get lost in our work. It's especially when it's so close to our hearts. Um, it it can feel like it it defines us, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like you know, there's so much intersectionality between our lives and our work. I mean, especially when what you do, you're passionate about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, like identity is is so much more than that. And so when you separate yourself from your job title, from Miranda Bennett Studio and the bells and whistles of your career, who are you really? A super goofy, super sensitive, um, very like loving and enjoys laughter, can't really put up a facade and like I am something that I'm not. Um, I I think when I feel most myself is when I'm with my husband and we're like just being really silly together or being really quiet on a walk together. I think those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. Um, I really do enjoy problem solving. I think that was like a, a tool for self-care that I cultivated at a very young age, kind of within that sphere of feeling a lot of like loneliness was feeling such empowerment when I could figure things out for myself and provide what I needed for myself by being resourceful. Someone who also has a really insane recollection of movies and quotes. It is mm-hmm. like a strange rain man skill I have, which is also a movie reference. Speaking of a movie, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so or like certain television shows um interesting it's a really funny part of my personality that like I don't know what that's about but that's me <laughs> I'm always so impressed by that because I am not good at that I have I can remember like real life things really well but when it comes to pop culture I'm just like I forget everything. It just well, goes in and out. <laughs> like, I think it's such a good conversation starter. I feel like it like creates yeah. a common language though for us. Exactly. You know? And I think that's maybe why it resonates so much or why it, yeah, it takes hold so much. Cause I think I get really, um, I really enjoy like analogies and, you know, just having, having access to things that I know can kind of help translate a thought or an experience or an emotion and stuff. And um, I just, I don't know, I grew up just watching so many movies and so much media. Um, I think that's part of like just being a latchkey kid, you know, it's like you get Mm -hmm. home and it's like time for the, the afternoon shows or whatever, but yeah. Is there a place you've been where you were like, this is it? Like, this is where I feel like Miranda Bennett. In terms of like geographic location? 
yeah, I'm curious. Have you ever landed in a city and been like, oh, this is this is it? You know, I think it's I think that is Austin for me. Um, I think, you know, I lived in New York for 12 years and I always had this kind of yearning for Austin, not in every way, but what the city could offer, if that makes sense. Like I missed the vibe of people, the, you know, just the kindness, the openness, the easiness um, of the way people are here. It really is remarkable, you know, when you've been other places. Um, But I, for the longest time, like I just couldn't imagine being here because I wasn't at a place with my career, with my experience level where I could learn and grow in the way I wanted to and progress in the way that I wanted to by being here because of where the city was at at that time too, which was much smaller and um, really like not the creative kind of hub that it's become or becoming now. Um, But I think for me, there was this exciting moment when I had come back for, um, I'd come back for a visit and it was like, I felt like I saw the city with fresh eyes and it was like having the realization that it wasn't the place I had known in high school anymore, that there was so much more happening. And also that I wasn't the person that I had been, you know, this was like in my late twenties, I kind of woke up also to this feeling of like, okay, like this was my decade for prioritizing work over quality of life. And I did that. And now I'm personally in a place where I'm ready to translate kind of what I've learned for work in a context where I can put quality of life on, you know, equal footing. Cause that's kind of the New York vibe is like, you know, you just, you're not soft while you're there. You know, there's so many ways in which you're meant to kind of harden yourself from everything, everything from, you know, your walk to the train and kind of being able to tune out stuff to, um, working really long hours to not having a washer and dryer or a dishwasher or just, you know, like not having any of that stuff. So like even just simple things that are part of maintaining your life require a different level of coordination and consideration and time. Um, I think I'm really glad for the muscle that that gave me and being able to flex it here in a place where like, you know, there are softer elements of the way that you can live here. But I think that work ethic combined with the culture of Austin is kind of my, that's my sweet spot, I think, for my identity or who I am. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't want to go off here on cities, but I was just thinking how there are quite a few people I've interviewed who have lived in New York. And, um, and these are people like on the podcast who now live here. There's something in New York or in LA in a hub that you feel like as a young person is, um, beneficial, you know, maybe not necessary, Mm -hmm. like, but it's, but it's useful. And I'm kind of asking that for people who are listening and for my younger self, because I remember when I graduated college, I was like, you know, should I just go to New York? Or, or LA and just like do that thing you do when you're young, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't because I had a long distance partner who was living in Nashville, who I'm now married to. And I was like, <laughs> I know if I don't move to Nashville, that relationship won't last. Like we were long distance for two years. So I had to, I had to go to Nashville if I wanted to save, you know, the relationship. Yeah. But 
but it was such a, an interesting kind of summer of me just trying to figure out where I was going to live mm-hmm. and New York and LA more so LA. Cause I can't be cold. Um, <laughs> you know, they were, they were definitely there in the forefront. And so as people kind of, if they're, if they're creative or graduating college or whatever, and as they consider where they're going to live, mm-hmm. what would you say to them about moving to a city like New York? I mean, my feeling is if, if it is speaking to you and it feels like it's on the menu for you, I would do it as young as possible because I think it's a great place to live when you have no standard of living, you know, honestly, because, um, I mean, I moved there when I was 17 and there was so much about it that I was kind of insulated from because of my age and really still being a teenager and just kind of taking things as they were. Um, and you know, there, I had that experience of it. And then I did have like a more professional young adult experience of it. Um, and I think it is a cool place to live once in your life. That said, things in between now and then have changed so much in the way our world is both centralized and not centralized. You know, before we had social media as the tool that it is now for connecting people across, you know, in this very democratic way across locations, how that's given people curiosity to really see this behind the scenes and be more fixated on process than necessarily on location or on the sort of legitimacy or perceived legitimacy of like saying, you know, I'm a New York designer versus an Austin designer. I think that's really rooted more now in the work you're putting forth. So I think if you have what you need, the tools you need to grow and learn and do the work that you're curious about and refine that craft, at this point, you can do that anywhere. You know, it really doesn't have to happen exclusively in New York or LA. Um, On a personal and nostalgic note, like I wouldn't trade my time in New York for anything. That said, it's funny, like my husband, he, he was like, yeah, I just, I guess I just missed that window and it's never going to happen for me either. And I'm like, Hey, you never know. Maybe we'll be like 70 and we'll just get a little apartment somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I think that's kind of the beauty of New York too. I mean, and, and LA I'll say, but I, my connection is with that city. So I naturally am going to talk more about it, but I think what I kind of consoled myself on when I was leaving was like, the city will always be here, you know? And I think when you've had a connection to it, even if it's just from traveling there for work many times or whatever, that connection never goes away. It really is a place that is so much bigger than just its geography. And um, I think you can have that connection and that bond to it, whether or not you put put that kind of time in. Um, I enjoy going back there now because I'm not just in the work grind and I can actually like really savor the city in ways that I couldn't when I was actually living there. So I think that's like another layer to it too. Mm. But I, yeah, I think things have really evolved now in terms of this idea of like, you know, packing up your suitcase and moving to the big city with just your dreams, (laughs) you know, but I think, uh, I think it's just whatever you need to do your work, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, there's not the same path for every person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you make your first dollar and how does that 
job speak to you today? What did that job teach you that still applies today? I made my first dollar working at Fresh Plus Grocery in Hyde Park when I was 15. And um, I loved that job. It was so much fun because all of my friends worked there. Um, And I worked at the register, but I also worked in the deli, which was like my favorite because I got to work alone and this ages me significantly, but I could bring my boom box and I would get back there and play Bjork and make the, (laughs) I made like the sandwiches. I made uh, the baked goods and um, like all of the sandwich stuff itself we would do from scratch. So I was a vegetarian, but I was making like chicken salad from like a fresh chicken. And, um, and sometimes I'd leave my post at the register and go back there and just cook dinner for all of my friends that were at work. (laughs) We had a really good time, but I think what it taught me was to have fun at work and what a long way, like that you could be, you know, doing literally any job. Um, I think what I've learned since is also to take the the job itself a little more seriously, (laughs) but, um, you know, just that, that is such a big chunk of the real estate of your life. And for me, it's so essential that I can do that in a way that allows me to be who I authentically am, that allows me to connect with the people I'm working with, um, to feel comfort with them, to feel laughter, um, to be able to keep, I think laughter for me has always been such a significant tool just because levity helps to keep things in perspective, you know, and there is this, you know, always this potential to sort of let things get kind of to lose the proportion of what the impact really is. You know, if you have a challenge or, you know, something goes wrong, et cetera, and it feels like suddenly you're in this like life or death mind space, it's so helpful to have that tool at those times to step back and kind of realize like, hey, it's not the end of the world bad things have happened a million times over to different, you know, and, and to help you kind of remember to like perk up a little and figure out the way forward. Um, but yeah, fresh plus I blew my first paycheck at what was then Highland mall. (laughs) And I think it was at like hot topic and on a pair of like sketchers. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Sketchers. Yeah. <laughs> the obsession. <laughs> yes. I it makes me think of my first job which was stringing tennis rackets oh, um in our garage in southern Florida where it was you know blistering hot and um yeah like just just thinking of tennis and how it became you know for lack of a better word that exists um unfun you know and, uh, and yeah. And so, you know, and, and in the inverse way, learning that, you know, don't do what's not fun, you know, <laughs> but I will say stringing rackets is really tedious mm-hmm. and you, anything, if you mess up, you know, the, it, it's not going to happen. Like you have to redo it. And so having focus, you know, in, yeah. in your work is really important, you know, because you, you have to be efficient and people really value that. And I think that can get lost today because we're doing so many things and we're so distracted, mm-hmm. you know, um, so easily distracted. I think it's interesting. Anything, any time you've had a task you've had to perform by hand, 
where the outcome is either correct or not correct. You know, I'm using air quotes with correct, but you know, like mm-hmm. in this case, like yeah. there is a right way to string a racket and a wrong way, right? Um, I think when I switched from liberal arts college to design school, that was like the biggest like wake up call because I was like, oh, I can BS my way through a paper, but mm. I either made the pattern correctly or sewed the garment correctly or I didn't. And the time of that is kind of a non-negotiable. It's like you you can't cut corners or, or you know, accelerate any part of it. it. It just takes the time that it takes. I think that is such a grounding lesson and kind of another really beneficial thing for everyone to experience. And that could, you know, that could mean a million different things. It could be, you know, gardening or it could be, you know, making a meal, whatever. But to engage with something that you do that's outside of yourself that has this like actual physical product, I think is a really powerful exercise. Yeah, that's so well said. I feel like, you know, a balance between the two lives in what you do, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's something to be said. I don't know. It makes me think of like objectivity and, and, you know, how writing is so tricky because like, how can you really grade writing? I mean, you know, yeah. Like, I feel like everything that I did quote, quote wrong in college with my writing is what people love in my writing now, you know? So I'm like, like wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gosh, that's that work? So I mean, that really reminds you of the power of teachers, you know, the power of um, people, like, that's everyone's first encounter with having them, like, being evaluated. And there's so much of it that is a matter of opinion. And it's a really powerful spot to be in, you know, because it can really make or break someone's relationship to a given subject or their understanding of their skill at something. I've had friends where their connection to something was stifled at a very early age because of, you know, bad feedback. And then I have other friends where because of good feedback or good intervention from a teacher, they discovered their true calling, you know, so it's so interesting how it can really cut both ways. I did this exercise once and it was like, it was like, who are, you had to list the, I I don't want to say demons because I don't want to demonize people, but that might've been the word. You had to like list the demons of your art. Like who, who has showed up in your life who made you feel bad about your art? And it was a really good exercise because I kind of forgot, you know, like you, you sometimes will, you will push those people into the back of your mind because it it's painful to think of what they might have said or how mm-hmm. they might have treated you um but it was helpful to kind of purge that and also to like study their feedback even if it was neg- negative or critical some of it it's actually useful and our feelings can get in the way of how we receive that criticism and that's something I've had to learn my whole life I you know I think there is this human tendency we can get 10 compliments and one kind of scathing criticism and it will focus on that one over the 10 you know and so I think there's that aspect of it is like how you keep that stuff in proportion but also like you said like the gift of it is this is this is really like it's an offering of critical thought on your work that you you can be the better for, you know? I think there are exceptions to that. There are people that are like haters going to hate kind of thing. But I think there are like there are 
morsels of really incredible insight that are priceless sometimes in that critical feedback that will bring up stuff that a compliment couldn't have, you know? So I think it's the tricky thing is keeping that in proportion and also kind of like you also described having your, your support system also in place. So it's never just one voice that is the final say on was this good or not, you know? Um, And remembering that like, there will be more output from you and like that one, one thing is not the finite final word on what your ability or capacity as a maker, creative artist is, you know, but I do think like having put work out there in that way alone is also one of the more humbling and eye-opening experiences anyone can encounter. And you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it, right? Like, I always think of, like, A League of Their Own when <laughs> Tom, like, here I go with the movie reference, but when, like, Tom Hanks is, like, you know, yelling at Gina Davis, like, hard, of course it's hard. Like, if it wasn't hard, everyone would do it, you know, but mm. that, there is truth to that with um, with these endeavors that, like, you know, if they weren't so dang hard, like, it would look a whole lot different and there is value in the challenge, you know? I think a lot of people are discouraged by um, embarking on, you know, a dream because they're worried that the industry that they're interested in getting into is saturated. Mm-hmm. There's no chance. There's no space. Um, but it's, it's not, you know, I mean, there might be a lot of people existing in that space, but how well are they really doing, you know, and that's not to critique them, right. But there is that separation, you know, between the exceptional and, you know, the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where the real work lies. Like you can enter into the industry, but then, then what? Yeah. And I think there's also, there can be this fear that, you can't put anything out there until it's absolutely perfect. And I really, I really don't agree with that because I really think there is that essential feedback that will only happen once the thing is out. And until it is, it's an echo chamber if it only, you know, lives with you. And I don't mean that to say like, don't do your due diligence and don't perfect what that is. Of course, do that. But I, I just, I know so many people where they're, um, they're kind of being the gatekeeper to themselves before putting that, you know, taking that first step and it can be so paralyzing and I think it can, it can really cost a lot of time, but I think it's particularly a phenomenon among women and I think it comes from trauma ultimately and I think it comes from a sense of always being evaluated and always having our worth kind of up for consideration. Um, And often through these external methods, whether it's how we look or how we present or what work we're doing or what we can contribute, et cetera. But I think um, I really, I struggle with like, there is a, when I get the thing that I want to make, I feel such an intense urgency. And so I'm actually coming more from the other side where it's been a lesson for me to slow down. But then, you know, observing friends where they are pumping the brakes so hard that they they just can't get the thing out. I feel like 
I just wish I could give them permission that like what they have is good enough to start with. And that, you know, look at like the iPhone, how many point O's of it have there been, you know, and if we could give ourselves a little bit of that grace with our own work, that like this is version one, and there will be a version two and a version 100. And like, each of them will evolve and inform what comes next. But like, it's okay if you don't stick the landing the very first time. Mm, That's such good advice. So take us back to the beginning. Okay. That being said, um, tell us the story behind your first collection. Ooh, okay. Um, so my first collection was, I guess I'd consider my first official collection. It was my um, thesis collection when I was graduating school, um, graduating college. And I I kind of took a strange route through college. I started in liberal arts. I then went to Parsons and did an associates in fashion design. And then I went back to um, Eugene Lang, which is the liberal arts school at New School that I was going to. So they're all under the same university umbrella. And I was able to carve out this really cool curriculum that was a fusion of what I had done with my like studio time in fashion and continuing on that with um, art history, as well as sort of um, doing this like historical analysis of manufacturing and mass production. Um, So my collection was a response or an offering of an alternative to mass production and kind of, you know, a argument for slowing process down and bringing it back to the individual level. Um, so I worked at this really cool boutique in the West Village while I was in school and my boss encouraged me, you know, I would make my own clothing. My boss would encourage me to wear those pieces into the store um, and to bring them in on consignment and sell them. And I started selling things before I was able to, like, before I graduated, which was, like, hugely empowering and eye-opening um, to kind of rip that Band-Aid off really early. But with the, you know, like, it softened that transition because I was still in school when I, you know, first was selling my work. Um, it wasn't like I'd embarked on, like, okay, I'm starting my own line. But when I did my thesis collection, I it was a combination of um, – yeah, like a historical paper on how mass production started and an interview series with different women that were creating their own work from, you know, their apartments in New York. Um, Some of them taking more of like a fine art approach to fashion. Um, And then also my boss at the shop about like how she was kind of finding these designers um, because that was really the point of view of her store was like, things that were being made in this like small batch way. And this was like 2005, 2006. So it was kind of before we were really talking that way in the industry, um, before kind of what you could think of as like this like maker movement or the slow fashion movement. This was still a time of like, you had the big designers and that was like fashion with the big F. And there was no discussion certainly in school of any other way to approach working um, within the industry. So. For my thesis, I I presented my collection, which was kind of all made from my apartment. My sewing machine was in my bedroom, you know, like, and uh, I had my, uh, all of the women that I had interviewed, I had their work there as well. Um, And then I, you know, had the paper as my like 
my thesis, but the collection sold out and I got my first wholesale orders that night. And it changed everything for me because, um, you know, it wasn't like I had this like massive cash infusion that meant like now I'm renting an office on Madison Avenue. Like it still meant I was going to be making this stuff from my apartment for a while. But um, it was like so not in the plan that that would happen. I assumed I would, after graduating, go, you know, work in like an entry level position for one of the big, bigger name brands. Um, and suddenly I had this opportunity to like just strike out kind of on my own and see what that could look like. Um, and that ended up kind of coinciding with this really interesting wave of more boutiques that were really like, stocking their racks that way, trying to find these undiscovered smaller batch lines. Um, and that also is an interesting time because it was before we had social media in the way that we do now, you know? So it was kind of right on that cusp and well, not even right on that cusp. I mean, this is like, I feel like what Instagram came out in like 2010 or something. So this was like before e-commerce in the way that it is now. Um, it was the way to have a line and have your work was to wholesale it. So that was always my, that was how I was approaching my line from that point on was, um, you know, selling it through other retailers, which made the recession in 08 very, very devastating. Um, so because, I mean, all of those little shops that were, really the lifeblood of like this kind of burgeoning slow fashion movement. They, so many of them shuttered or had to kind of pivot and really sell the more well-known or established lines that they could feel confident, you know, would, would still allow them to remain open. Mm. Yeah. So there is that thing, Miranda, where you see someone have that success and you assume that, they're doing really well and that they're made. And so you fall into that hole of comparison, mm -hmm. you know, and you just said, no, like, even though I did have success, even though I sold out, I was still sewing from my bedroom. You were doing the work that a lot of people don't want to do, mm -hmm. you know? And then at How that time, there was no platform to show, you know, like you right. were like, posting that uh, like behind the scenes on Instagram in fact, it was something I felt like I couldn't talk about. You know, you wanted to front like you were more established before, oh, wow. you know, like it was a very different attitude at that time in the industry. I cut you off though. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm like, I have so many questions. Which one should I ask? Um, yeah, I guess what was that like? Can you just, can you just shed more, instead of asking a specific question, I just want to ask a loaded one. Can you just explain more what, what that felt like to be, to, to do well, but to also know you had so much like more to go, you know? Um, how did you kind of balance that? And what did it feel like? Like, I kind of want to know emotionally what it felt emotionally, like. Emotionally, I felt completely illegitimate. You know, I, I think it was, uh, there were like, it was like this duality of like really high highs of like, oh my God, this is possible. I can't believe this is like, I'm actually selling something I made. Someone's giving me money for this thing I made with my own mind and hands, you know, that was such a high and that felt so, so validating. Um, 
but there was also this real sense of like, you know, kind of having to front, like I knew more than I did. Like I was in a, you know, financially a better situation than I was that I had means that, you know, resources that, um, that I didn't have because also at that time in the industry, it was a very like homogenous version of what fashion was. And it was very affluent. It was, and it was very, you know, there was a lot of nepotism and there was a lot of, you know, who you knew and, you know, not, I don't like there's networking and then there's kind of this next level of it, you know, which was like, it, it really did feel like at that time there were these gatekeepers to the industry. And I mean, that was even my perception when I was in design school and I was really lucky to find a group of women that really were of a different mind about it, but we were very much in the minority and those women became, you know, my everything as I did start on my own. And I mean, that looked like us, like my best friend and I, she had a jewelry line and I had my clothing line. We would literally like go to like LA together and like pound the pavement and like just walk into boutiques and kind of do these like cold calls on them and just be like, you know, who can we give our line sheets to? Who can we talk to? And like, you know, it was just such a different, I think a lot of my humility comes from, it was like very humbling experiences, you know? Um, so yeah, emotionally it was, it was exhilarating and it was also, you know, kind of really feeling on the outside at the same time. This episode is in partnership with CamilleStyles.com, an online publication for everyone who aspires to a life well-lived. Every day, Camille Styles provides engaging storytelling and imagery to inspire the pursuit of your passions on the path to creating the best version of yourself. My series, Beyond Skin Deep, on CamilleStyles.com serves as a visual representation of Woke Beauty podcast features. The column showcases stories from creators, makers, and community shapers, female visionaries who seamlessly bridge holistic health, authentic inclusivity, conscious artistry, and a unique path to healing and restoration. The best stories are told across the spectrum. Here you hear her, there you see her. To read more and to see vivid photographs of our guests taken by yours truly, visit CamilleStyles.com. So you address through your work, I mean, since day one, you're addressing a global issue, right? Um, You're addressing a lot of issues. But before we dive into that, I do want you to speak directly to um, carbon pollution um, which is oftentimes created by fast fashion and overconsumption. Um, I think a lot of people don't know or forget that clothing is like killing our world, you know? Um, anyway, so I don't want to speak on it cause you're the expert, but, um, can you describe the problems you're addressing with your work in regard to, um, climate change in regard to the environment how are your clothes having that impact? The deal with fashion is it's hard to even quantify the total carbon emission impact of it because it is just so vast. And that has to do with all of the complexity of supply chains that go into making just a simple t-shirt 
and then compounded by the fact that we all wear clothing, right? It's one of the things that is completely universal, you know, across the globe. So it's something we're all engaging with, no matter our opinions about it, and no matter our concerns about how things are made or where they're coming from. Um, So that just alone gives the impact of this industry just like an astronomical weight. Um, And then in addition to that, amongst the supply chain itself, we're not just talking about like one material that is then translated to one product. We're talking about a whole host of raw materials. And that's everything from natural to um, synthetic and then to things that are regenerated natural materials, um, where those are made, by what process, how the natural materials are grown. Um, how those regenerated items are, like what is the chemical process by which that happens, how things are dyed, what happens to those wastewaters when they're dyed. Um, And that's before we're even talking about cutting or sewing or shipping a garment. So when you start to really look at it in that context, I mean, it is, it's it's huge, you know, And I think it's gone unchecked for so long. And it's funny because I am, as sustainability and ethical fashion become more and more discussed, I'm brought back to the themes that I was writing about in my senior thesis in college, you know, which really was, we went from apparel making as this sort of cottage industry, as something people were weaving in their homes, the fabric or, you know, their small town center had like the one person that actually made the dresses or whatever it was to, um, you know, these kind of like by catalog engage, you know, like this year's catalog or whatever to, you know, mass production of clothing in an industrial context and the implications, you know, that happened alongside increased, like the ability to, to, physically transport people in much faster ways, like the railroad, all of these things that suddenly made our perception of time and space and what was accessible to us totally morph in such a short period of time. Um, So all of that just felt like progress, I think, you know, for people and for what it could mean for industry, et cetera. And there really hasn't been a reckoning with all of the implications of it on the environmental and human level until very recently. And I think fast fashion was the thing that just kind of put the accelerant on it to where, you know, a lot of those themes and a lot of those issues were existing, but with the way that fast fashion has transformed how people shop, where they're now buying, you know, two, three times as much, keeping it for half as long, um, that I think is the thing that really it illuminated the impl- like the flaws of the system as it was already by really um, you know multiplying the effect of it. And it's not just environmental, it is human. It is literally human lives that are lost when factories collapse. It is childhoods that are stolen when people are working in these factories. And that's literally the only opportunity because, again, of, you know, it's like you could argue like, well, hey, it's creating jobs. But it's like, well, the only way that this community can create these jobs is by offering the lowest possible wage in the global marketplace 
And that, again, comes down to the human cost, because for that to be possible, it means that people have to be paid less than they can live on. And that is the only situation by which a child would be in a position to work. It's survival, right? So there's just a lot about it that I think globalization is the other big piece of it, you know, as we are trading and doing business across borders, which I think has the potential to unite us in a really beautiful way. It's instead, in certain contexts, created this sort of, um, you know, this marketplace where the lowest bidder is rewarded. And because of consumer demand for certain price points and to shop in this new way where it's like 70 new styles from one retailer every week and they all cost under, you know, $50, it's like, it's, it's two parts, you know, there's, it's definitely a dance. And I think it's like the manufacturers are supplying to a tempo that now consumers are demanding somewhat. Um, so anyway, getting back to the carbon of it, you know, it's, um, the scale is, is truly astronomical. And I think it's challenging within the space or the concern of greenwashing. There's kind of also this, um, tendency now for brands to talk about like the, you know, this has a carbon savings of X based on like a traditional garment, et cetera. And I feel like within that space, it still kind of gets us into this, like, it's like the joke of like, I just saved you so much money because all of this was on sale. You know, it's like, but you're spending it in the first place. You're getting new things in the first place. So it there is just kind of, I think the biggest piece of like really cutting down the carbon impact. It of course, is in the supply chain and how we're doing things, but it's also just in the frequency of how we're purchasing and the fact that we need to consume less and keep it longer, bottom line. You know, that is that is the best way we can address the carbon issue within the fashion industry. How does that affect companies? Um, because I feel like oftentimes the the argument you know if people want to argue um which they often do Mm -hmm. um is well even if I don't purchase the clothing Mm -hmm. like they're still going to make it you know yeah what is your response to that I mean hey what has the election shown us like literally it can come down you know the way that things are sold who they're sold to it all comes down to individuals, just different groups of individuals making different decisions. And there is no, it, it also kind of speaks to that thing of like, well, why bother starting? It's not going to be perfect. Start where you are, you know? And if for you that is, hey, I'm making a commitment to not buy fast fashion from the retailer. I will from a thrift store, you know? If I want a quick fix in that way, like, there are other ways I can get that. Um, I think there are these individual actions that do over the course of someone's lifetime add up to great impacts. But more than that, it's the modeling that then happens for those around you because it's like you're also giving other people permission to think a little differently about what their impact is and how they could be doing things differently. Um, So much of this stuff is influenced by what we see and perceive as normal. And what the big move right now, I think, is to denormalize shopping in that way, you know? 
there are a lot of voids that you address. Um, and you speak to them, I mean, just by living authentically, of course, but directly through your work, you know, you, you provide access in ways, in very intentional ways that um, a lot of people don't. Um, and, and just some examples, you create jobs for our community. Um, you diversify your team, but also the people that you hired to model your clothing um, in a way that does not commodify them, which is key. And then you have a, a zero waste initiative. And so I want to know, I, I, th I think, I assume, I, I know we shouldn't, but I assume that you believe in manifestation. And so I want to know how you have manifested more inclusion and more importantly, equality. How do you co-agitate in your community? Another great question. Um, I, I do think, you know, in terms of representation through our modeling, for example, I think, well, actually, let me pull back. I think every decision you make as a business is a choice that can be neutral or can be intentional and actually like have impact or ripples beyond what the a surface level intention of the thing is, right? So a photo shoot, as an example, you need to have this dress shown on a person. So how do we, you know, let's, let's get a model. Okay. Well, then it's like you step back and you start to ask questions of yourself and of the position that you're now being put in as a gatekeeper of who is going to be in those clothes and who do I now have the power to put in a position of representation. Um, I think every step like that as a business, as a small business is an opportunity to do something with the highest impact possible. And I think at the core of all of my decision-making and the intention behind all of it is how do I create environments, products, situations where women feel of value? And that is always what I go back to. And I also consider the earth to be one of those women. And that's where like the zero waste initiative comes in. Um, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, it's, it makes our work harder. I admit, you know, I think particularly like the zero waste thing, like, that's a lot of time my team has to spend sorting and ideating like what products we're going to make with these new things or what channels can we um, then process them through that will prevent them from being in landfills, you know, whether it's a quilter or a textile manufacturer or what have you. Um, that said, I just feel like though we don't have unlimited monetary means we have unlimited means to always improve and do better and I always want to look at every aspect of what we do there is always going to be room for improvement and I think that's true for all of those things that you called out about what we do and um, I'm honored to be seen by you in those ways because you know it is very intentional and I think on the flip side it's like we could always do better and um, I think that's kind of another example of like, you know, you start where you are and you just keep checking in. And I think with our work, it's just we just never stop checking in. And I think I'll know that I'm done when I no longer have the desire to check in and improve. But um, 
I just think, you know, you can't be lazy about any of this stuff too. And I don't mean to use that word in like a, I don't know. I, but I do think there is quite a bit of laziness amongst the industry of just kind of like, Oh, no one said anything or that doesn't seem to be a problem. Or, you know, I saw one brand come back at, um, they were, you know, called out for only having very specific looking, you know, it's like very Scandinavian looking models for every campaign. And I think their response was like, well, that's what our friends look like. And it's like, Oh shit, really? That's made it worse. It's like, so I just, I think, you know, and then there's also even within that, within wanting to cast in a way that's diverse and represents our like legitimate community, like who we are connecting with, who I'm connecting with through the brand, through the store, through our spaces is like also to not tokenize and to not make anyone feel that they're really just being utilized for this one attribute. But I mean, for me, it all goes back to like the whole woman and that applies to the women on our team, that applies to the women modeling our clothing, that applies to the experience a woman has when she wears one of our pieces. I It all just goes into reinforcing worthiness and value. I think I've had to really negotiate so much with growing up with very diminished representations of these female archetypes. My parents had a very abusive relationship that was physical and emotional. And I internalized so much of that shame around this woman that was my archetype and seeing her diminished all the time. And I have, that's really my core motivation is the work I'm doing is meant to give worth to the women that are in any way exposed to it. Sorry, that was an unexpected, (laughs) um, I've never really shared that. Sorry, unnecessary, but I appreciate you being sensitive to me. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, meaningful and powerful that you could take something that had an impact on you that I'm sure to a large degree was traumatic um, and you could put it into a formula and then make other people feel better. You know, that's, that's incredible. Um, I think that is, that is the mark of, of someone who is truly creative because what you just said was you, you haven't shared that. And that means that that lies within you. It's something you don't even have to share, you know? What we get to see is the the beauty we get to see, which I, I of course think what you shared is is the real beauty, but we get to see the end result. You know, we get to see the flower. You know, we didn't have to see you digging in the soil with the soil <laughs> underneath your fingernails, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that is just, I think, I think remarkable is the word I was looking for. Yeah. You know, my the question that I don't have to ask now that I would have asked is how do you bolster other women? And it sounds like you you do that by taking aspects of your life that that might be painful and translating them into beauty. And so, yeah, I think we all have a, a duty to tell you thank you for doing that. It's really, really special. Thank you, Riley. Well, you definitely have you teased something out of me that I've never felt comfortable sharing. And I think that speaks to you as a person and the space that you create around yourself. So thank you. Okay. So I, I don't know, I guess I, I have a couple of more, I feel like they're like trite now. So before I, I, it'll feel um, 
maybe jarring for me if I just immediately ask you like what's your favorite book so um how do you relate to your childhood and and all that went down as an adult yeah you know it's so complex and I don't think I'm done sort of negotiating it um I think oh there was a lot of trauma and there was and I think everyone in their own way has experienced, you know, things that were traumatic to them. So um, I also don't present this as sort of, a, you know, I don't think it's unique to have trauma in your childhood. Um, on the other hand, I think what's been challenging for me is the, from the get-go, you know, in addition to what was going on with the abuse, there was also, um, there was other stuff that was happening, that was, you know, there was kind of always an undertone of like, we don't talk about this outside of the house. And that, I think, was the most damaging of all, because it sort of uh, created this understanding of myself in the world as not, not okay as I was having to kind of be on guard about what people could know or not know. And just a lot of instability in internally within the family. And, you know, like the cops coming to our house, um, things going on with like uh, just money and different stuff like that, too, that just made for a very, I think that's where when I kind of connect with like the loneliness that then led to the creativity that I touched on in the beginning of our conversation, um, I had to just really create a space for myself that felt like safe and that felt comforting and self-soothing and really having to cultivate that capacity for self-soothing at a very young age um, and doing so through creative expression um, as much as possible you know and then as a teenager doing so in ways that were like definitely self-destructive you know I think I'm still reconciling it I'm still seeing and understanding things daily sometimes about understanding my parents and, you know, understanding the trauma that they came from and what they were, you know, that at the end of the day, like they are these children themselves. They, and I think what's interesting with them in particular is they both have these very, there are still these ways in which I feel like they, they have unresolved childhood trauma as well. And I think a lot of what I received was the product of that. And that taught me as well that like that I want that cycle to end with me. Um, but to have the humility or the empathy for them as well as people to not just say, oh, you're a bad parent, you know, but sometimes it's hard for me to reconcile the experience of being in contact and I have to kind of pull back and I, you know, then I feel guilt about that. And, you know, there are ways in which that cycle still feels very much like an active line. But I think the biggest thing I've realized is without the capacity to have grace for them, I can't have grace for myself. Because so much of what I grew up around is internalized in me. And mm. I don't want my reaction to recognizing that in myself to be shame or recoil or disgust. I want it I want to meet, it's like I have to start there with that grace so I can meet myself there with the same grace. And that's the only way to heal, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so eloquently put. Uh, it makes me think about, um, I was having a conversation with my therapist about trauma and I was like, my goal is to just not remember it, you know, and goal is to just forget it, you know, goal-oriented person. <laughs> and she was like, what if there is no goal? And like, what if, what if you can't forget it, you know? Um, what if the, the whole point is just to carry it, live with it, and texturize it in a way that suits your life and your well-being, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Okay, I got to go think about that for a while, you know, (laughs) but I think that what you just said is kind of the culmination of that, you know, that's how you bring texture and color to it in your life, because it's going to exist. It's a memory. It's it's a part of you, Mm -hmm. you know, there is no right answer. And, you know, you're, you're kind of meant to go on a tangent in that in that response, because that is what we go on when we think about our memories when we think about our trauma there is no one direction we go because it's totally. so multifaceted there's so many tunnels yeah. you know I'm sure after this um, conversation I'll be like oh man this is the <laughs> thing I meant to say to to Riley about that you know like it's because it, it also depends on time of day that you're thinking about yeah it's ever where it's ever changing in the month etc it's um and certainly never something that's complete you know I think that's like the big thing for everyone to just like give themselves that like understanding that awareness of is like, it's okay that that's never a journey that's complete. Like you said, like retexturize it. I love that. I love thinking of it in that visual way too. Um, but I think the big thing for me has been God and like why it's so powerful to even like talk about this with you now is I oh the biggest thing I've had to overcome is feeling this separate like feeling that I was betraying my family unit by sharing my personal experience because of how it related to them and being able to claim like this is part of my identity this is part of how I grew up this is something I have to reconcile with completely outside of who you are as a person you know, to either of your parents. Um, I still feel like, gosh, I kind of hope they don't hear this, (laughs) you know? Um, But it's, yeah. And I'm still holding back. Yeah. I was just going to say, I I feel like you've revealed so little, though what you said I know is a giant part of your life. Oh, yeah. And I've gone through phases of forgiveness and re- and and then being angry all over again, being sad all over again, feeling forgiveness again. That's also what I mean by like, it's never done. It's never like you've come to the conclusion of your assessment of this chapter. It's like, I feel like as I evolve and change, and also like as I consider motherhood for myself and all of those things, it's like, you know, it. it's just, it's a wheel. It's definitely not, it's not linear at all. Yeah, so true. There's a book um, I read over the summer. If you haven't read it, it's called All About Love Ooh. by Bell Hooks. Ah, oh, Bell Hooks. Yeah, yeah. But this is a different Bell. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is a different Bell. This is not, she's not as sociological in this book. Um, and part of my sort of obsession with like studying solitude came from reading that book. Oh, because amazing. She speaks to it in a really beautiful way that I think would resonate with you. Oh, I'd love to. 
And she talks a lot about like the family construct and how it affects us individually. And she talks a lot about love for self. And so I think, I think you'd really appreciate it. It actually incentivized me to have a conversation with my dad more so just about, um, we, we started talking about how sort of like care in the household presents differently in different cultures and why does it do that? And yeah. And so, and that ended up being a really deep conversation. Oh, and I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that. That's not really cool. <laughs> Yeah, it was really neat. We were actually road tripping to Del Rio. I mean, don't you have the best conversations in the car? I don't know yeah. what it is. I think it's because it like you have sort of the buffer of like the open road and like the hum of the car. Like I feel like Justin and I have the we love road tripping together because just the quality of that time together is so special and so unique. It is. It's kind of insular. It's mm-hmm. like a it's a container, yeah. literally. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. I've been talking to Jack about that too, just how we need to be more mindful of setting up a container for ourselves, Yeah, you know, like setting aside intentional time to be together instead of just letting it happen, totally. which becomes really easy to fall into when you're together for so long and you're also in a pandemic yes. and blah, blah, blah. Um, yes. But it feels so nice to be like, hey, you want to hang out on Saturday and do this, you know? There'll be no screens and, and no, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you've set up like infrastructure mm-hmm. to flow, you know? So I'm with you. I think driving, walking, like movement, yeah. some kind of meditative movement is really, is it can really aid in feeling this sort of, sense of security yeah no I think that's exactly what it is I feel like it definitely for me it's like it soothes my anxiety that movement kind of soothes that anxious part of my inner being and it really allows you to be present in a way that feels really like frictionless and really wonderful so who speaks to you who in the world motivates you and has kind of guided you in a way through life. I don't want to say who inspires you because, well, because I'm insurgent and that word's overused. <laughs> um, but also that's not the word. It's, it's you know, who has been like a, a guiding force? Who, who is, who's someone that you've looked to and, and you feel like just fulfilled or you feel motivated? You feel like, oh man, like I'm so... Uh, I'm so soothed by them. You know, it could be someone in your life or or someone that that some of us know or or maybe we don't. Oh. I feel like that's like a really big question cuz yeah, I'm thinking of all of the different ways that could apply. Um I feel like in terms of women right now whose like words specifically soothe me, um Alex L who I just read um, after the rain. And it was like a few months ago when I really hit a big, hard, just like burnout, hard mental health week kind of thing. And I needed to take a step back. And I felt I was like messaging with her about it. Cause I was like, this was like a lifeline to me. It was like, it nursed me kind of to the other side. Um, I just love her. Like, she speaks so directly and purely from her heart. And she's also so genuinely invested in like the success of other women. Um, I love uh, Glennon Doyle. I've been listening to her um, to untamed on 
like the recorded recording of it, which she reads, that's been like, a, I'll just go for a walk. There's a track near my house and I'll just like listen to that for an hour at a time. Um, and I find that like, I think maybe in lieu of being able to be social with people right now, I find that really super comforting and it feels like a really rich conversation with a good friend. Um, and then I think my dearest friend, um, who lives in LA, but we, before the pandemic, we like have a, we had like a quarterly, like we would see each other once a quarter kind of commitment. So whether that was her coming here or me going there, us meeting somewhere in the middle, um, she's someone like we do these full moon and new moon rituals. So like twice a month, ultimately we have, you know, it's funny, like Justin came in for one of our last ones and I'm like, sitting in my office in the dark with just like candles lit and my altar up and my cards out and my like oils, you know, like diffusing and et cetera. And he's just like, Oh, Hey, oh, okay. So you'll be, you'll be doing this a while. <laughs> like he's just like, so used to it at this point. <laughs> like, okay. Um, but like those, I was telling a colleague of mine at the studio, it was like, it, it feels like my church, honestly, having those check-ins um, and the, like the, consistency of them because like we're able to actually because we do them consistently together really like keep tabs on what themes come up in previous conversations and kind of where they end up now um gosh I don't know there's I could keep going because there's you know if we get into like authors or movies or act you know like all of that kind of stuff I feel like there is a lot more ground to cover but right now in this moment, those would be, those are the big ones that kind of stand out to, to this moment. Do you have a most recommended book? Well, I would definitely recommend uh, After the Rain. I think for everyone right now, because it has a combination of, it's biographical, but there's also journal prompts and meditation prompts. So I think it's like, it's a 360 experience as a reader and I think has elements to it that are you know, considering the communal trauma that we're all going through, which is what this is, you know, and it's really easy to forget because it's getting sort of somewhat normalized, but then still feeling, you know, like these jarring moments of surrealness. Um, I think it's just a really, really excellent tool and companion for right now um, to kind of get to the bottom of what you're feeling and and also like knowing that we're all kind of going through a fresh and communal trauma how that can speak to prior trauma and kind of reinvigorate different threads and stuff um which can get really that can get pretty heavy pretty fast you know and I think we're not really registering that as a society right now um I mean I've gotten to a point now where I've started I've just last night had my third anxiety dream about people not wearing masks <laughs> So I'm like, okay, this is my, wow. it's, it's officially permeated to my deep psyche, you know, and that's intense, you know, yeah. it's super intense. Do you dream usually? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot in my sleep. Interesting. Yeah. Sometimes I'll wake Justin up and it freaks him out. <laughs> Are there patterns in your dreams? Mm. I feel like I go through cycle with like anxiety dreams. I feel like I go through cycles or themes. Um, I have a lot of dreams where, you know, they're, they're very realistic. Like I don't have like super fantastical, like I'm flying all the time kind of thing. 
my favorite dreams are I'll dream that I'm with my best friend that passed um, in 2015 and we're just together. And it's just such a like warm, familiar, beautiful feeling. And I'll wake up and feel so sad that it was a dream. Um, And I have those dreams about my grandparents too. Um, I kind of like live for those, (laughs) but you never know when they're going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that's incredible. How do you nourish yourself when you wake up? My cocoon. (laughs) In your cocoon. (laughs) Well, the first thing I do is um, I don't, I try really hard not to look at my phone. And I go to my kitchen and I have my Bach flower remedies, which I was telling you about when you were at the house. Um, those, uh, I have those, I drink a big glass of water. I have an assortment of supplements that are, you know, all kinds of things from like ashwagandha to acidophilus. And then I like to like, just let that do its thing in my system for like 20 minutes. So that is when I'll inevitably get on my phone. Um, unfortunately I still do our social media for the most part. So I usually dive into that. Um, but I don't really get into email or anything like that until I've actually like gotten up and gone into my office space. I think that's been really important for me to boundary off because I've had the experience far too many times where I read something first thing and I like, you know, it, it sets the whole day kind of into a tailspin. Um, oh, and caffeine. While I'm waiting for my um, my supplements to do their thing, I have a very strong cup of tea brewing. Um, so, before, what kind of tea? I just do I do black tea, but I depending on the brand. If it's PG Tips, I do two bags. <laughs> and if it's just like if it's like if they're sold out of that, I get this other English one, and I have to do three of that one. But I think that wow. from our time in India, like they brew such strong, amazing black tea. Like it's just like, it's like a solid almost, you know, like it stands up to cream. It, it you know, I hate weak, like coffee or tea. It just, it, it I want to just get it away from me as soon as possible. <laughs> okay. So tell me if you could speak to yourself a decade ago and you we're like, hey, little Miranda, how's it going? And she was like, you know, I really need some advice from my future self. <laughs> oh man, what would you tell her? I would tell her to value herself more. Um, that she is a really precious thing, and that there's nothing wrong with her. Um, and that her ideas and thoughts and feelings are legitimate. Um, yeah. That's exactly what I would tell her. And it's what I still need to tell myself now. But I feel like that is the journey I'm on now is really believing that in my bones, knowing that in my bones. And it's it starts here. You know, it starts with speaking it to yourself. Um, but I think I just really didn't value myself. And I still am working on that, you know. Well from an outsider who cares for you. You are extraordinarily valuable and you bring so much value to our lives. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing in conversation with me and for being so um, comfortable with being uncomfortable. I I really appreciate that. You made that 
entirely possible. So thank you, Riley. Thanks for such thoughtful questions and for wanting to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Always. That was Miranda Bennett, sustainable fashion designer, community builder, entrepreneurial leader, and all around incredible human. You can find Miranda on Instagram at Miranda Bennett Studio. And to purchase a beautiful plant dyed piece, you can visit shopmirandabennett.com. They have an incredible gift guide as well. I just got a lavender sachet in silk charmeuse for my grandma for Christmas. Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at WokeBeauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at WokeBeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Uh.